Welcome to Discovering Academia, an interdisciplinary podcast with preeminent professors from around the world, striving to stoke the curiosity of scholars everywhere. Today we talk with Andreas Albrecht, Professor of Theoretical Physics and the Director of the Center for Quantum Mathematics and Physics at the University of California, Davis. His research focuses on the field of cosmology, which includes fundamental questions about cosmic inflation, dark energy, and the formation of cosmic structures. In this episode, we talk about a wide range of topics in physics, from defining quantum states to explaining the origin of the universe. Professor Albrecht shares the beauty of studying some of the most abstract and theoretical topics in science, and how modern technology is opening the door to new breakthroughs. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, Professor Andreas Albrecht. Thank you for coming on today. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. We'd love to start off by hearing a little bit more about your story. How'd you get to Davis, and what got you interested in quantum physics? Oh, there's a lot to that story. <laughs> Where, how do I start? I, I um, well, okay. I, I um, in high school, my big dream was to be a professional violinist. <laughs> that, that was my thing. I worked very hard, practiced many, many hours a day, and then I took my high school physics class. And just it just turned me around, and I was <laughs> just became really excited about physics. I think um, it it was taught differently than my other science classes. I hadn't been that excited by science before, but it was taught a little differently. And I think something about physics itself, you could work on problems that you, once you got the answer, you knew you had the right answer, and you could think all you wanted about it. And a lot of a lot of other science classes were taught, at least at the you know these lower levels, as more kind of multiple choice, mm -hmm. sort of learning learning lists of facts, and there's sort of ways you can get lost in that mm -hmm. <laughs> and not, not feel, it doesn't feel that solid. So, so um, I really just liked what it felt like to um, study things from a physicist's point of view. And um, then quantum physics, actually, yeah, you, you had mentioned that um, in your questions. I, I – um, there, there, I actually found my way to the back of it. So that was quantum physics wasn't covered in my high school class, mm -hmm. but there was something in the back of that textbook about it, like okay. an appendix or an extra chapter or something that we didn't cover. And I became really fascinated with it. And mm -hmm. I think um, so that really was already the beginning of my fascination with quantum physics. And I think the um, the way, probably the way to describe what it was like is that. The, the guys who discovered quantum physics, they weren't necessarily trying to create a revolution. They were just mm -hmm. trying to understand these stupid atoms <laughs> that, that weren't making sense with the physics that they knew. And they were just trying to fix that. But they ended up creating a revolution. And I liked that mix of, um, you know, methodical tools, just trying to trying to get to the bottom of things. And sometimes that can just totally blow your mind. Mm -hmm. Certainly. So, could you describe what quantum physics is, and then also maybe link it back to what, how it differed from those original problems that it wasn't able to fully explain how these atoms interacted? Or yeah, so so quantum physics is different is is a different way of describing the matter and the and the energy in the world. We're used to they're being hard facts. So the mm -hmm. table is the table. It's right here. Um, quantum physics deals fundamentally in probabilities. Mm -hmm. So if, if you ask from the quantum physics point of view, where is the table? Well, maybe it's here, maybe it's there, maybe it's somewhere else. Now, for actual tables, 
we think we think quantum physics describes everything now. It was mm-hmm. it was a hundred years ago. It was a radical thing, and no one was quite sure where it was going. But now we think it describes everything, and so it's just the quantum physics for prediction for the table is very very sharp, very narrowly predicted to be mm-hmm. right where we mm-hmm. see it. But as you get down to the atomic scale, um, the, the probabilities get very vague, and so when you ask where is an electron in the atom, it's all over the place. Yeah. And there's still mathematically concrete things you can say about the way it's all over the place. And they, it could be in sort of this distribution or that distribution. Um, but it's a very different way of talking about um, mm-hmm. matter and, and it was certainly a radical thing. The other piece, so, the, so that's one piece of it. And the other piece is that um, certain things we take for granted, like you can take an object like like this cup and you know exactly where it is and exactly how fast it's moving. Mm-hmm. And that's something if you've taken a, any physics class, you've probably seen equations like Newton's laws mm-hmm. that you assume that kind of thing. In in quantum, so for motion, we, we fundamentally talk about momentum. Mm-hmm. And, and in quantum physics, the momentum and the position of something can't be perfectly specified together. And that's known as the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Mm-hmm. And um, that's a radical thing too. Like, you know, if I have, if I throw a ball, I got to know where it is and I got to know how fast I'm throwing it. And that all, we do that. Mm-hmm. But again, when you get down to atoms, um, there's a lot of uncertainty about where something is and how fast it's moving. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be the foundations. <laughs> so, so all these things like the balls we throw and the table we put things on are all made out of quantum objects. Mm-hmm. Actually, one of the one of the curious things is exactly how all that weird quantum stuff hides away when mm-hmm. when we build balls and tables out of it. Yeah. And then when we talk about uncertainty at the atomic scale, are we certain that the electrons are somewhere in that atom but with where within it we're uncertain? Or the, to the, an extent, the, to, yeah. So it's there. There's a there's a um, mathematical description, mm-hmm. and and the further you get from the atom. So if we if we're talking about a single atom, mm-hmm. then the further you get from the atom, the more sure we are the electron's not there. <laughs> but yeah. it's never a perfect sure per, yeah. perfect certainty. There's there, there's there's a there's a tail to the distribution. Mm-hmm. Um, when you when you get when you make certain kinds of like metals out of out of um, atoms, you lose the, the atoms get less and less associated with the given nucleus. So, so okay. all kinds of other things can happen for other materials. Yeah, and that's how electrons can like flow through and metals. Yes. Okay. And it gets even more. So, so if you've heard of superconductors, yeah, where electrons can flow without resistance, mm-hmm. that's that's a quantum effect where where oh, okay. where the quantum state of these electrons gets so disconnected from the 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 normal classical picture that they can flow um with ease yeah with and then a quick definition what does it mean to be quantum because you said oh everything's made of quantum objects so what is yes yeah. so really um when i speak that way about it i i'm saying i'm talking about things that obey the equations of quantum mechanics okay and and things that therefore can most funnel fundamentally be described only through probabilities and only with things like 
momentum and position not being specified together mm -hmm. to, to with perfect precision. So these properties, so so they can only the, the f fundamental understanding of matter as we know it is described by equations that have these properties. Sure. They're about probabilities, and they mm -hmm. don't let us specify yeah. things like momentum and position together. That makes sense. And before we keep going, could you give a brief overview of, I guess, the history of quantum physics in terms of when was the idea first brought out, and how did it become popularized, and where does it kind of stand now? So, so I would, I'm not going to, I'm not I'm not a great historian of science. I'm not, there's, there's there's something I could help you look up and get the sure. exact dates right and all that. But about a hundred years ago, mm -hmm. um, pe people started realizing there was some a little more than a hundred years ago. People started realizing there there was something wrong with physics as we knew it then applied to the atom, mm -hmm. and 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 there was a sense that the physics as we knew it the atom wouldn't be stable. So people knew the atom had a nucleus and they knew it had an electron around it. But um, why didn't the electron just fall right into the nucleus? Um, the physics of the time would have had that happen mm -hmm. in no time. <laughs> so mm -hmm. so it was really um, a mystery. And there were lots of pieces to that story. Um, there's something called the Bohr atom, developed mm -hmm. by Niels Bohr, which um, just guessed like what, what could what could be different? What how could we fix this? And it was really, you know, in many ways, looked like a very rough guess, especially not from the point of view of, of where we see things now. But it actually got some critical things right, mm -hmm. and and so it um, that was the start of it. And then people saw, um, so, so so there's something um, something called Planck's constant that's mm -hmm. absolutely critical for for. Um, our understanding of quantum physics. And wh when I say that position and momentum can't be determined together, it's Planck's constant that tells us the limits, that sets mm -hmm. the limits. Um, uh, Planck's constant was, we, we um, know it by the letter H. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's the letter H comes from the German word for fudge factor. <laughs> and it, that's what it was in, initially. So there, there were, explorations of of um of ph phenomena with photons photons interacting with atoms and and something they were developing a very rough theory of how this all fit together mm -hmm. and they realized they needed a number <laughs> and they and they said well let's just call it h the fudge factor and then that's turned out to be a really fundamental yeah, number really. so it's sort of like a lot of things in physics it came together in bits and pieces mm -hmm. and then how close are we now to understanding all of these different aspects at a holistic level kind of meaning how many questions are still out there? So that is a really fun question mm -hmm. because, um, especially regarding quantum physics. So, so, um, quantum physics is so different that, um, even when it works really well, People have trouble swallowing yeah. the, the implications, and one and maybe you've heard of the famous Schrodinger's cat. Mm -hmm. um, the The idea is that, uh, according to quantum physics, things can be in two different states at once. Um, a cat can be dead and alive, and so on. And physicists, 
even though we know exactly what equations to solve and we know exactly how those for for many things uh, you know so we can we can take some situation in the laboratory and work out the equations and see that quantum physics is working wonderfully um physicists actually get pretty bent out of shape as a community <laughs> dealing with these weird dealing with the weirdness of quantum physics mm -hmm. which is fun part, part of the fun of that is that our culture as physicists is sort of we we don't get bothered with fluffy talk because we can turn everything into equations and yeah. make everything really solid and focused and stay you know stay stay true to the pure logic of our of, mm -hmm. of our theories but um quantum mechanics is so weird that we can't stay true mm -hmm. <laughs> to just following the math and 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 um taking pride in, in the rigor of our work people get distracted by these sorts mm -hmm. of questions and um and we don't really know where that's headed. So, so there's sort of roughly two camps, two broad categories. There's people who say, yeah, we should just believe the equations. We should allow um, for different outcomes, different, different outcomes to coexist. So there's a, you know, you know, we flip a coin and I decide, you know, heads, I, I I get impatient and go storming out of the interview <laughs> tail. We stay around for three hours. Um, we, you know, the so-called many worlds description mm -hmm. would say nature has both of those stories mm -hmm. to tell, and it's they're both happening. They're mm -hmm. both real in some sense, and the and and that's more or less my the camp I'm in. Mm -hmm. And the appeal of that, so the obvious thing. You could ask is, well, how do, how do how can we don't notice the other part, mm -hmm. right? So how can we don't we, those two things seem completely disconnected, and and the thing is the equations actually have an answer for that. So you can technically ask, what what would it mean to communicate among among those different worlds, and and you'd um, find out you couldn't. It's not that you couldn't; you absolutely couldn't. But the 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 um, efficiency of communication would be so suppressed by physical processes that that you really um, that you really can't communicate. You know, you can't have an an awareness of these other worlds. Mm. And so, like for for someone like me, that's really exciting that there's this mystery, but it has a technical answer that you can calculate stuff and say okay. okay. And then and then by comparison, if you if you say well there's different worlds in the atom where the electrons either here or there um the communication among those worlds is really efficient so so you have to you you can't think of them as separate worlds the electrons this big mushy mess in the atom and it's not in separate positions going off in separate worlds and so something happens when you go from one atom to many atoms like us that that changes things and changes the way the different worlds can communicate and all of that. So, so that's one point of view, and the uh, the other point of view, roughly, is, oh come on, that's just nonsense. How 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 can you possibly, you know, if like if someone comes in and sees me calculating something, sure, and 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 they say, what is all that stuff you're calculating? I'd have to say, well, most of the things I'm calculating are the things that could have happened but didn't. Like, why would you have a theory <laughs> busy? Like, most of the work of quantum physics is to calculate the things that could have happened. 
but didn't, mm-hmm. but didn't to us. And then, you know, then you say, well, but there's happening mm-hmm. out there in, in other, in other worlds. Sure. That just seems so weird. <laughs> like, like since when, you know, since when do hard nosed practical minded people like physicists <laughs> buy into that kind of nonsense? Mm-hmm. Right. So, so then there's other people who say, there's gotta be some, there's gotta be something, some better equations that mm-hmm. don't make us tolerate all this multiplicity mm-hmm. and everything. And the interesting thing from my point of view is that people have been trying that for many decades and haven't found anything good as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. So, so I think if someone could find something really compelling that did that, <laughs> it'd probably be, be pretty hard to resist. Yeah, sure. But, but quantum mechanics has stood its ground and, and it's not, it's not yielding to that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At least so far. And visually, how do you interpret the idea of there being multiple worlds? Or do you not interpret that in a visual sense? Um, me? I, I'm not sure I have a good visual at the moment. I'll, okay. I'll, I'll probably, I've not been asked exactly that question. Mm-hmm. Okay. But, but I will say, I take those other worlds seriously in mm-hmm. the sense that I wonder, you know, different paths I've taken, different, you know, mm-hmm. things that have happened with people I care about, you know, kind of wonder like what it's like in these other worlds. So, so I, so in that sense, you know, I take, I take it, I take it pretty seriously. Mm -hmm. And it just seems like quantum physics is a decent blend of somewhat philosophy backed by a lot of hard science and equations. That's a very interesting thing to think about because those worlds are often separated. But, um, is the analogy- we struggle with that relationship too yeah. because a lot of physicists don't want to admit they're doing philosophy. <laughs> they want it to be all about solid equations. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so each probably each physicist has their own um their own perspective on how much philosophy they're ready sure. to, <laughs> to contemplate or how much they're willing to admit mm-hmm. they're thinking about philosophy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if this, like, correct me if uh, this understanding is probably wrong or not, but is it basically just saying there's all of these options on the table, but we are only able to observe one? That doesn't mean the other ones aren't happening, but kind of similar to if you press play on the phone for this podcast, but you don't have headphones in and, you're set and your volume's off, doesn't mean the podcast isn't playing. It's just you're not perceiving this. I, I like that. I like that analogy actually yeah okay yeah um you're not perceiving it and then there's another copy of you on the other branch mm-hmm. not perceiving you yeah oh. so so <laughs> there's this mutuality like mm-hmm. everyone everyone's off in their world mm-hmm. um but there's different copies yeah so so like we flip the coin and make that choice both me's and, and all of you's so actually that's a that's a good illustration so the thing that's not going to happen is and this is something you you can see with the equations is it's not going to be where we flip flip the coin like we share a world where i think it was heads and you think it was tails <laughs> mm-hmm. there's going to be the heads world and the tails world and the decisions we've made based on that going forward but there's not we're not going to get in arguments about whether it was heads or tails at least if we've done a good <laughs> coin flip mm-hmm. okay and so those those options where you think oh everything's confused nothing's nothing's solid that's where it gets solid is, is that when you flip the coin, we all agree what it is. Mm-hmm. There, there's two copies of all of us. Yeah. We all agree in each, in each world. So in that standpoint, I guess visually it could be a, like a lot of forking in the road. Yes. yes. So 
because it's a heads or tails example, there's two possible outcomes. There's two possible roads. If you roll the dice, there'd be six. Six. Yes. Okay. That makes more sense. And, and some point, it wasn't on your list of questions, but since we've gone this deep (laughs) into the subject, quantum computers are a good topic Mm. to mention. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I could do it now if you like. Yeah, I'd love to. So, so the, the essential idea of quantum computers is to take these different worlds and bring them back together, let them part for a while and then bring them back together and then use all those different worlds for par- basically parallel computing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so if you have a computer, you think of it as one thing, but if you could let it branch out and be many mm-hmm. <laughs> and then pull it back together and use that as, use that as a tool for parallel computing, mm-hmm. um, that would be incredibly powerful. Yeah. And that is possible because quantum computers are computing on atoms at roughly zero Kelvin. Good. Exactly. So then the question is what, um, right. So if, if we made quantum computers out of objects in this room, Mm -hmm. you couldn't do it because of the things that things that hold the many worlds together. Mm -hmm. If you, if you made it out of single atoms, potentially, but then you need at least one atom can't compute very much. Mm -hmm. So, so then you have to, so, so basically the, the engineering side of quantum computing is, well, the, the, um, the physical electrical engineering, if you want to call it that side of quantum computing is how do you assemble enough atoms to do something interesting without having all the phenomena that keep the world separate Mm -hmm. for good, for practical purposes, without letting all those phenomena take over and ruin, ruin the, ruin the chance to bring the worlds back together. Mm-hmm. So, so, so it's a lot of engineering, a lot of quantum, a lot, lot of, you know, looking for the middle ground between mm-hmm. the atom, which is, which is very quantum, but not that interesting, but a lot, or like a supercomputer of, of our era was just too classical. We use the word classical for things that where the quantum effects are hidden mm-hmm. and, and, um, things that are large enough for the quantum effects to be hidden. And because you're operating still on atoms and they're, you can't touch them, you can't move them, you can't, they're at, are they at zero Kelvin? Are they near well, zero? Some, sometimes they go to zero to Kelvin, other times they go, I mean, there's different approaches mm-hmm. to try to try to simplify. So you basically need to simplify the physics enough that there's not all these different phenomena that are ruining the quantum effects. So that's when it it becomes computing because you are able to implement that change and then watch that change occur. Well, then the other piece, yeah. But mm-hmm. the other piece is then if you, if you suppose you achieve this branching and then bringing the branches together, mm-hmm. um, what computations can you do with that? Yeah. And that, uh, you know, one piece of that story is algorithms. Like, like what, 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 if I have these tools so, so I can do these things, what, you know, how do I write code for that? Yeah. How, how do I, how do I, you know, work, how do I actually benefit from that efficiency mm-hmm. for that potential efficiency? Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of work going on with that as well. Yeah. And would the coming together occur naturally? No, it'd be yeah. hard work. Like, like we, our worlds, we flip a coin, we'll never come back together on, on that, um, Mm-hmm. on that one sure and and so how to, so you have to engineer something so you do 
come back together and there's a, and and the way these different worlds tend to be separated it turns out it's really overkill like every every single photon that strikes us is break, is keeping the worlds apart so oh. so like if one photon hits my head and goes flying off into space to bring the worlds back together we'd have to go catch that photon <laughs> and and reflect it back sure. and and, yeah. collect, and then collect all the photons like who who yeah. can do that yeah. we yeah. we can't do that and and so what you do we, you have to do is keep those photons out to begin with mm -hmm. and, and and you have to just really isolate the system so it's only interacting with the different um elements of the computer yeah are there particular models that they're trying or algorithms that they're trying to use to design these there's are lots there, yeah like are they building them for the purpose of particular models that they want to run or just to build them Sometimes. for the sake of getting there so 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 there's um all of that's going on so the answer is yes to everything yeah. <laughs> um people are trying all kinds of things um pe people are uh generally the idea of a computer is it's um know has a lot of you can program lots of different things on it mm -hmm. and some people are sort of thinking about it that way other people are thinking about very task specific mm -hmm. computers and that's sort of every like you know a thermostat i, I just thought you just looked at the wall mm -hmm. a thermostat is a computer and when i was a kid thermostats were really basic things you know made out of heat sensitive metal mm -hmm. and the little you could open it up and pretty much understand how it worked mm -hmm. Now they have little microchips in them mm. and, and they're computers. So, so that's sort of an illustration of both approaches. The early, the early thermostats were, were purpose built, yeah. you know, with built to run a certain algorithm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, modern thermostats have microchips that could be programmed to do anything. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, every, and you, and, and like what decides how to build a thermostat is, is sort of the economics, uh, you know, it's a sort of an engineering question. What, what have you got? What tools have you got mm -hmm. available? You know, when people, when, when there's only one microchip in the world, you're not going to go build thermostats <laughs> out of it. Now, now, now you can, you know, pick them off the floor in an <laughs> engineering firm. <laughs> yeah. Totally different. And for the listener who may be completely unfamiliar with quantum computing, is a crude simplification one saying the world is full of quantum computers just called nature? We all are operating with biological atoms, like molecules. Like our body is a massive quantum computer just operating in a different way. Yes, and I, I, I like saying that. Mm -hmm. um, the difference is that it's a quantum computer that's not exploiting the potential of the mm -hmm. many worlds. So, so, okay. so everything, yeah. and, and maybe a way, yeah, I like, saying the whole universe is a quantum computer <laughs> and, and and the thing um i'm trying to think if i can do this in a simple enough way but um basically if i want to describe the math of a single particle moving along a line i need two numbers i need its position and momentum mm -hmm. for classical physics for quantum physics i need an infinite number of numbers to describe the probability of finding it anywhere along mm -hmm. the line and that's a lot harder. So if you tell me, go calculate, go write a program to calculate, to solve the equations for a single particle, if it's a classical particle, it's trivial. I just, yeah. in no time, I've got two numbers, I have an equation for them. That's very easy stuff. Yeah. Um, once you have an infinite number, you can't put an infinite number of numbers mm -hmm. on the computer, so you have to start making approximations and all that. But 
nature, when the, when nature moves a particle along the line, it's doing the hard calculation yeah. <laughs> and it's doing it in real time. So, yeah. so, so it's, so nature's doing all this hard work mm -hmm. for classical computers. Engineers work really, really hard to keep the quantum effects out. <laughs> okay. And to keep it simple. So, so to, to, to make, make the ingredients of the computer pretend they're as simple as a single particle on a line. Mm. Um, but nature's doing the hard work anyway. Yeah. So why not harness that? Definitely. And then stepping out a bit from quantum computers, could you talk about your work with quantum cosmology? Sure. So maybe we should just start with plain old cosmology. Sure. Which is, um, you know, how how did the universe begin? How did the galaxies form? What what does all that look like? Or maybe some basic facts or stuff like that. And too. We can, yeah. We can talk about facts. I know you asked me about sizes and numbers yeah. and well, I I did. You know, I have ways of talking about these numbers professionally that mm -hmm. maybe are hard to relate to. And, I, and I'm not sure. So, okay, the universe is 14 billion years old, 14 billion years old. Like, what's that even mean? Mm -hmm. Like to, to creatures that live, you know, mm -hmm. maybe up to a hundred, what does 14 billion years mean? I don't, you know, it's hard to, hard to even picture that. And, and then what that means is just to like the period of time in the universe where we think we understand its history. Is 14 billion years mm. but we have no reason to think there wasn't something there beforehand <laughs> okay um the for for related reasons um the observable universe is about 14 billion light years <laughs> across mm -hmm. um but that's sort of just as far as light has had a chance to travel since the beginning as we know it and and so it's just like as far as we can see <laughs> mm -hmm. it doesn't mean there isn't a lot more out there yeah. But but it's as far as we can see. So um those are some numbers. Mm -hmm. Um there there are we we use the mass the mass the mass of the sun is like ten to the thirty kilograms. Like what does that mean? <laughs> like like how do you what how do you do ten to the thirty? I I've I one thing I didn't bring with me i i've in public lectures i've said like okay if we want to do a distance yeah i think i think i i think i'm remembering this one correctly so if you want to cross the size of the universe go to a mountain range pick up a grain of sand walk a kilometer pick the next grain and walk another kilometer and when you've cleared the whole mountain range you've got to the other side of the universe <laughs> yeah so like wow <laughs> Yeah. It's it's really beyond beyond normal comprehension. We're we're used we use powers of ten. Yeah. Yeah. So so it's 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 more available. But but I, I will say that um to this day every now and then I and I've been doing this my whole adult life. Mm -hmm. To to this day I'll stop now and then and think, wow, I'm really working on this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is there a shape associated with the universe? Um, I really like that question too, because, um, it's really simple. The shape we, as we know it, is just simple. Like it's the same in all directions and very sort of as far as we can see, sort of unremarkable and the most unremarkable shape you can imagine. Um, a colleague of mine, uh, so for a while, uh, several decades ago, people were working on all alternate shapes and I was thinking, oh, that's just so 
too too quirky for me until I thought about it and realized the only reason I thought that is that I was sort of used to thinking <laughs> like uh. I could just fall into a groove <laughs> mm. of thinking the standard way, and it's actually it actually was a really interesting question, like why why would it be one shape rather than another? And the thing is, general relativity, which is our best theory of gravity, mm -hmm. Einstein's theory of gravity. Um, will allow for all kinds of shapes, all yeah. kinds of really weird shapes. Mm -hmm. So, so it's a really great question. What is the shape of the universe? And and a friend of mine, who who worked on who worked quite a bit on that, tells the story of how he um, he so he he was working on the at the time the biggest best data set on the universe, and he he had helped create it, and he had helped. Um, sort of analyze it and bring it to bring it to a workable form and he thought okay now it's time for me to do the shape of the universe test and he set it all up and he's pressed go <laughs> and he got this result like the universe has a very complicated shape mm -hmm. and he was living on cloud nine for about a day thinking he'd made this radical discovery until he realized that he had run the test not on the real data but on the sample data he'd created oh. <laughs> to to explore what would what would the data look like mm -hmm. if the universe had a radical shape that makes a lot of sense just kind of thinking about that idea if we observe the universe from light coming in from light years away and we operate on what is basically the sphere not like perfectly but it would seem from our perspective, it would be spherical. Yes. Yes. But that's because it's our perspective. Yes. And because everything is coming to our centralized point. So I have an analogy I like to give with that. And I'm going to let you guide me a little bit. Mm -hmm. How much? <laughs> sure. How you, should, should I go into that? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so imagine we go out to the massive desert as far as the eye can see. And we set down a grid of, I don't know, every kilometer um, a grid, a point on the grid. Sure. And then we take some really noisy thing. When I was a kid, we were fascinated by cherry bombs, which are big firecrackers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you you yeah. sound like you've heard of those. So they're sort of the, the biggest firecracker you could get, and they weren't legal. But, you know, they were for scaring birds off of cherry trees. Oh, that was okay. the, That's why they're <laughs> called cherry bombs. So, so um, they, you put a cherry bomb on every point on the grid, as far as the eye can see. And then you set it all up so they both, they all ignite at the same time. So there's this big boom. But what do you hear? Well, first you hear the ones nearby, mm -hmm. then a little bit later, because the sound takes time to get to you. Then you hear the ones further out and so on. And so at any given moment, there's sort of a circle around you, which are the ones you're hearing mm -hmm. at that moment, the one ones where the sound has got to you just then. Yeah. And it's the same kind of... So that's in two dimensions yeah. of the plane, and then you take that to three dimensions, you get a sphere. That's just what you were talking about yeah. a minute ago. And then with regards to the data, you said your friend was working on this data model. What is, if, if it is simple enough, what is some of the data points that they're collecting right. for these models? So, so they're, um, they're looking, actually, it's a good thing we're talking about the sphere, because they're basically, so, as the, so the universe is known to be expanding, and as it expands, it cools and becomes less dense. Mm -hmm. And one of the dramatic events in the um, in that sort of history is the universe at early times was very dense and, and totally opaque. Mm -hmm. And then at some point, 
it, it diluted enough to become transparent. So there's this moment of transition to transparency. And so when you look deep, you can look deep enough, you can see the edge of transparency. Well, so, so, and, and it's like an edge, like you can't see past it because the universe was opaque at that point. And so um, that's, that's called the last scattering surface because the opaqueness is about photons scattering off of things and not, not just passing smoothly through. So it's the last, the moment of last scattering where each photon has its last scatter off of something and then which is colliding you know colliding with whatever electrons or whatever it collides from and and um, then it just passes smoothly to us mm -hmm. and that's called the last scattering surface and those photons when when they last scattered it was something that was roughly the t like the surface of the sun mm -hmm. and lucky for us as those photons travel through the expanding universe, they cool off. Mm -hmm. And so now it's just three degrees above absolute zero. Um, huh. If, which it's a lot, imagine something that's like the surface of the sun all around us, we'd bake in yeah. no time, right? So we're lucky about that cooling. Mm -hmm. And 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 we've detected that. In fact, this ball I have up here mm -hmm. is a map mm -hmm. of of that surface. So, so we see it from the inside. <laughs> that's harder to make. So they put the, so they put the map on the outside. That's an actual map of the distant universe 14 billion years ago. Yeah. Um, as as the photons were were leaving, ha having their last scattering. Mm -hmm. yeah. And for the listener, it looks like a globe with a red ring around what would be the equator, kind of representing the. And the red wing, red ring is actually the galaxy. So that's oh, not no. looking deep. So that's that's sort of so. You might think studying the galaxy is this adventurous mm -hmm. exploration of the deep, but for that project, the galaxy is just something that gets in the way oh, okay. of, 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 of looking way deep into the universe. Very interesting. And a lot of your work is focused around the origins of the universe, correct? Yes. How would you describe the origin? What do we know about the origins yeah. of the universe? Well, um, or real quick what do we know and then where is your position on the things that we might not know for certain so we have um sin since decades ago so well well before the beginning of my career which which started in the early 80s um there's been the big bang theory mm -hmm. and that's about the expanding universe it's about you know that, that's some expanding universe is something that can be understood very well in terms of Einstein's theory of gravity, which is our best theory of gravity. Um, we, against the, this picture of an expanding universe, we can load up um, all the known physics that's, you know, as, as we look back in time, the temperatures are, temperatures are higher, the physics is, um, you know, higher energy physics is relevant to those eras. And you can piece that all together and that's really become a marvelous story of success story where even even predicting this microwave background um was was at one time a radical thing there were people who didn't believe the universe was ever that that hot to be opaque and um and that was in fact the the big bang model was 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 a term um produced as an insult like by someone who didn't think it could ever be that that way Oh, your Big Bang model, <laughs> but but um, now it's the the basic our basic understanding, the microwave background. We've seen it now. 
um, other things, the formation of nuclei in the universe, all, all kinds of things fit really nicely into mm -hmm. the model. Um, there's a question about how that got started, what, what the origin of the galaxies is and all kinds of things. Um, there's a, something called cosmic inflation theory, mm -hmm. and that's something I've been involved with since the very beginning, um, which is now widely embraced as the right way to describe how the Big Bang got started. It's so um, productive. So, so it's, it's, a, it's a theory that does a great job of, um, it, it, you can collect all this data, like there's amazing data sets of, of like, they don't just put them on pictures on balls, they, <laughs> they're, they're really high power data sets that you can do all kinds of things with. Um, the, you, you can take those data sets, you can use them to fit, you can use inflation theory to fit what you see, and that's what physicists love to do, is mm -hmm. have data and theory and fit them together mm -hmm. and all that. So cosmic inflation theory has been really productive and rewarding to people who like to do that, which is mm -hmm. all, all physicists. But, but there's also some really interesting open questions with that, which I, I'm fascinated with, mm -hmm. and it's much, much more tricky. The, the relationship between the field, the, the community and those questions is much more complicated. Okay. I think a lot of people just want to hunker down and f have curves to fit their data. <laughs> and then, um, other people are absolutely thrilled to be curious about these. And then when you're talking about the data sets, could you give like maybe one or two examples of like what a data point would be? So, so, um, let's talk about the cosmic microwave background again. Okay. So, so the, um, so you have, so, so the, it's called the microwave backgrounds because these photons, which started more or less in the visible range have, have cooled. And as they cool, they change their wavelength and they go into microwave okay. wavelengths from the visible range. And, um, so it's basically a microwave antenna. Um, so, so some, I don't know if maybe traveling in the mountains, you see these big antennas mm -hmm. that are used for communicating, um, phone calls or yeah. whatever on uh, so so the first discovery of the microwave background was made by one of those antennas oh. at the phone company huh. where they were they were experimenting to understand what kind of backgrounds from the space were going to interfere with telecommunications very interesting so 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 you use a, a microwave antenna and and they don't have to be as big as that they they, they now you know have smaller you mm -hmm. know they had there's a whole technology for that yeah you you use a microwave antenna, you do everything you can to avoid interference from Earth. The best ones are launched into space and sit on far from the Earth on, on satellites. And um, and then you measure the voltage okay. of that antenna. Yeah. You look around the sky and you measure the voltage. And then you measure it at different frequencies and you analyze that and interpret it as, it as a temperature, which is the natural um, sort of way to interpret that because it's it's a temperature variation so what people then so after di digesting all these voltages as a function of so it's fundamentally voltage as a function of direction that you're yeah. pointing and then that gets shaped into a temperature as a function of the spot on the sky okay. and um then eventually that gets 
shaped enough that theorists like I can <laughs> know know how to work with it. And then how would cosmic inflation like what does it say? What is the theory? So so it says that um the variation in that temperature has a very particular origin and and certain patterns in that variation are expected to be found. And and one of the and and that's getting a little hard to describe in words, mm -hmm. but um, I will give a I, there's an analogy that so one of the one of the really fun parts of my career certainly has been developing that, but also developing an alternative theory and understanding how um, how to best to compare those two alternatives. And the analogy I give so there's these patterns in the temperature maps. And I'm going to just talk about an analogy with that. So if if you've ever taken a pot of water and just banged the side with a spoon, maybe I'll just just to be clear, I was once an undergraduate. I had jobs in the kitchen, and I would do that. <laughs> I, I didn't always. My manager didn't always appreciate the distractions <laughs> I found. But if I had the job doing pots, you, you know, there's some honking big pots they yeah. have in these these college cafeterias, and you can get some amazing standing waves. Mm -hmm. I, I recommend you, <laughs> you you wander back and talk to your friends who are working in the kitchen and check it out because yeah. there's some pretty amazing standing waves. That that's what inflation predicts. Basically, is this a pattern of standing waves in the temperature in in in, in, in the um, temperature fluctuations mm -hmm. in this in these microwaves. Um, the alternative theories, which um, were cosmic strings and related theories, whole different whole different story. I could get into that if you want. But the upshot was that if you take that same pot that has those beautiful standing waves, and instead of banging it once, just keep shaking it, shaking it, and shaking it, you'll never see the standing waves. You'll see lots of waves, mm -hmm. but if, if you just keep shaking it, it won't settle into the standing waves. And that was the alternative theory, okay. is that there were basically these these amazing radical strings moving, whipping through the universe at nearly the speed of light, just stirring and stirring and stirring. And um, so, and these were things we worked out before the data was in. Mm -hmm. So we knew it was going to be one or the other. Okay. <laughs> and then over time, the data emerged, mm -hmm. and and we learned that inflation, that these standing wave patterns were there. Mm -hmm. And and the cosmic string ideas were ruled out, and okay. inflation was working. And are physicists testing their theories on the same data set? Yes. Okay. So with with um, cosmology, we're at a stage where we really there's these huge data sets, mm -hmm. and there's people who devote their careers to being as good at good as possible at getting the best possible data sets. And then that at some point, and and sometimes they have, typically they have a head start um, working out the implications of that data set. But at some point, it it's, becomes totally public, and everyone can work with it and analyze it their way, and you know visit different ideas with mm -hmm. it, and so on. So, at a higher level, cosmic inflation is saying the universe is expanding. Or no one argues with that. Okay, um, but it's it's a details. I haven't told you much about exactly what inflation does. It it yields these predictions about the standing waves, but um, the whole the picture is actually one of of um, 
accelerated expansion. And now I'm trying to think if I can work my way, work another part of the story in, because it's mm -hmm. actually, um, I'm going to try. Okay. Okay. Because I, th I think it's, it connects to a few things. So one of the, um, one of the remarkable results from quantum theory when it's applied to elementary particles is that, um, so we, we tend to think of a vacuum as just, as just emptiness with nothing right. in it. But from the point of view of, of the quantum field theories we use to describe fundamental physics, the vacuum is just another thing. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's it's not, it's, I mean, technically we call it the absence of particles, but in terms of the, the fields that we use to, to describe those particles, it's just another state of those fields. It's, it's not a, it's not all that different <laughs> from, from a, a state with one particle or two particles. <laughs> it's sort of, they're all interrelated in a pretty simple way. So, so, the nothing in between the things is just an, a known state of matter predict, predicted by the, just how we understand the fundamental nature of matter. Is that antimatter? No, well, it's a different part okay. of the story. Okay. It's, it's, so the, the idea of antimatter emerged as another piece of quantum field theory mm -hmm. that, that sort of is needed to pull everything together. Okay. But um, the, vacuum is is this well-known state of matter and what inflation does is it it has this period of very rapid expansion and it takes that vacuum state that that sort of sits between the particles and expands it to all observable scales of the universe mm -hmm. and so what it does is it gives a very specific prediction if you want to know what it's like out there you take the vacuum state which is a known thing instead of instead of asking gee, how, you know, what is the state of the, what is the universe like at the beginning? It could be this, it could be that, it could be anything. Inflation says it's one thing. <laughs> it's, oh, okay. the, it's the vacuum state stretched out to all scales. Mm -hmm. And so it gives a very concrete answer to how things started, how things looked yeah. at the beginning. And that's, um, that's where these standing waves come from. That's okay. where a bunch of things come from. It turns out there's still dials you can turn so you can get different results and that's that's where the data helps constrain things okay but um that's sort of this very fundamental starting point is saying you you start with this vacuum state you stretch it to all scales and then and that's where then that's where the regular big bang takes over and does all the other stuff so it's a theory that once we got the data we could test it against multiple yes. data points yes. and then be okay no that does hold true yes, and that's and that's held true Okay, and then different people have different feelings about. So the w there, there's the remaining dials. Mm -hmm. So some people say, well, if you have dials, you can turn. <laughs> how, how much have you? How much of a prediction you've made? Have you made? Mm -hmm. And and for me, the 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 contrast with the cosmic string model was the big was the big um, turning point mm -hmm. where where we really had two competing ideas, and one of them failed. And, and inflation is the cosmic string model string theory. No, okay. although although there was a while when string theorists were especially curious about that connection, mm -hmm. it's not. Um, it, it's different. It's most. It's for the most part quite different. Okay, and within the vacuums, do we are we able to predict 
those accurately? This point, the part of it, because you said- So like, the, the vacuum is something we think we, in, in this regard, we understand it very well. Okay. Um, we'll, and, and, and it's, it's very quantum. So, so you were asking me about quantum cosmology. Um, that's part of how we end up thinking about the universe in a very quantum way is that the, it's the quantum vacuum that starts, starts it all. Mm. And, and, and in fact, one of the, probably the, it's fair to say, a big driver for me getting involved in all this quantum stuff that we were talking about earlier was how to make sense. So if the universe is so fundamentally quantum and if the origin of the galaxies is so fundamentally quantum and the quantum saying, well, it's all probability, so the galaxy could be here, mm-hmm. could be there. How does that turn into, I see a galaxy right there? Mm-hmm. And so wanting wanting to feel I really understood how to picture that is what drove me initially to really looking at some of these quantum questions I was talking about earlier. Okay. And then at a higher level, thinking about the quantum states at a very, very small level, just because like an electron might be in multiple places, if you take that scale and really pan it out to a, at the earthly level or at the universal level, it can both be true that that quantum thing might be having some variations at a small scale, but when we start zooming out, that variation is so small, it's basically saying it's right there. Well, good. So, so what happens so so um we talked about flipping a coin and how we um could then create two worlds with different different narratives different things happening and those worlds couldn't communicate with each other what what happens in the case of the um of of the universe and the and the quantum vacuum going to large scales is once it gets to the large scales and once all the complicated stuff starts happening like galaxies forming and all these things. The, that same complexity that keeps our worlds apart that we were just talking about will keep keep those different possibilities apart. So they'll all be there in, in my way of thinking, but but they'll they'll become inaccessible. So where whereas the electron in an atom needs to know about all the other possible places it could be to 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 um, experience its physics. The the electron the the um, galaxies don't know about the other yeah. possible places for the galaxies. Okay, so they could both be true at the same yeah. time. Yeah. yeah, that makes more sense. And so, how does the idea of like a multiverse fit into all of this? Does that exist within what we've been talking about about the quantum states, or is that a distinct? So, so that's um, that's a good place to start. So, so people mean many different things by multiverse. And one of the things, one of the places they start is the many worlds of, of quantum physics. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also ideas. So then the, then where we haven't gone yet is, well, how did inflation start? And it turns out that's a can of worms. <laughs> and, and that's a pretty challenging topic. And, and there's sort of lots of ways you could go with that. And one of the ways is that the universe actually exists in a state where many starts to inflation can happen or, or it's inflation sort of in one 
point of view, inflation is constantly happening sort of out there. And it's more like, how do you end inflation? How, mm -hmm. how do you find a way out of inflation? And there could be many, there, and, and in a popular point of view, inflation is always happening. And then different regions are ending inflation at different times and they just keep, it just keeps persisting. So infinitely many universes are created through this, um, through this, from this sort of infinite resource of eternal inflation that's called. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's a picture of the multiverse. Um, then that can get even more complicated depending on which theory you're okay. yeah. with. So would observing the universe end that line of inflation? Or like observing, if things are constantly breaking apart, going different directions, the, when we take that data point, we observe that photon coming back and hitting us. Right. Is that the end of that one line? So, so by by the time the photon's hitting us, uh, the brand. Oh no! Oh, will oh? I think I see what you're saying. Yeah. So is that not not long? No longer. It's definitely not going to. Well, now now we're getting to the point where. There's different ideas about what okay. the future holds and all of that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, observing a photon helps pin things down. Okay. Just like when we flip a coin, we all agree what mm -hmm. it was and that pins down yeah. what happens next. Observing a photon is like that in the okay. cosmos. Absolutely. Yeah. And then another broad question. If energy can neither be created or destroyed, where did it come from? So, so in... Um, so one thing is that we 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 know of energy being conserved and not created or destroyed, but in general relativity, that's not true. Okay, you can create energy. Okay, and um, and destroy it. So so it's only approximately true mm -hmm. in, in 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 the world around us because ba basically, um, the world around us. There's not much general relativity going on, mm -hmm. <laughs> and and so we're sort of safe from some of those phenomena in terms of everyday experience. Yeah. But um, it can it can be created and destroyed. It doesn't doesn't mean there aren't. So so I sense that you're bringing that question up as sort of a mystery of the beginning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean there aren't still mysteries yeah, <laughs> about yeah. the beginning. But um, we don't have to worry about the bookkeeping for energy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then could you explain briefly the theory of relativity and Einstein's theory of gravity? Because we mentioned that a few times. So, yes, I, I'm tempted. I'm, 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 I'm trying to I'm focus this because mm -hmm. there's lots of, lots of ways I could go with it. Um, I, Einstein proposed, and it seems to be true, that the phenomenon of gravity as we know it can be described through the curvature of space-time. Mm -hmm. So, so you take space, the three dimensions of space, add a fourth dimension of time, um, describe that in using mathematics that can describe curvature of of, of those um, in in that space. Mm -hmm. And there's a way to systematically um, interpret gravity as curvature. Of and so, and so, um, you might have encountered Newton's laws, where you say that without forces, particles move with constant speed. So, in general relativity, 
gravity is not a force. Particles experiencing gravity travel freely, mm-hmm. but they travel freely through curved spacetime. Mm-hmm. And, and it's that curvature that changes their path in a way that we think as the gravity, we routinely think of that as the gravitational force. But Einstein said, well, let's change that and let's think about that as free motion in the curved spacetime. So that could, could an analogy be if you were sending a ball spinning around a bowl and it's a frictionless bowl and that ball is going around, that's operating at a different dimension. But that idea that the ball is moving on that path because of the shape of the bowl. Yeah, I, I like that. Yeah. So, okay. so that's, yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a very rough analogy, but yeah, yeah it's, it's, the ball is just doing its thing. Mm-hmm. Um, normally we would say it's very rough because normally we would say, well, there's force of the wall of the bowl mm-hmm. on, the, mm-hmm. on, on the ball. But if you weren't so analytical about yeah. it and just say, oh, that's naturally, naturally moving in a circle because it's a bowl, mm-hmm. that's, that's sort of okay. a reasonable analogy. Yeah. Yeah. And then with that, what makes up space if we're talking about it kind of being a surface that the things are traveling through? So in Einstein's theory, that's a fundamental thing. It's called the metric and it's the metric is what tells us the shape of space and it gives all the information about how curved it is or not. And the metric is, um, so just like in, in Newton's equations, the position and momentum of a particle is the sort of fundamental thing you work with mm-hmm. in Einstein's gravity. The metric is the fundamental thing you work with, and it, the metric itself can change as a function of time, and it's a dynamical part of part of nature. Mm-hmm. Is the metric the way that people should generally think about spacetime or the spacetime continuum? Well if they're digging that deep, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, if you're trying to get to the corner store, <laughs> maybe yeah. it's just better to think of the, the city, city map. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, um, yeah, the, the, so, right. So then, so one of the things, um, the metric, the Einstein's theory helps us, um, work with is if, if it's normal to ask if the universe is expanding, what is it expanding into? And the right way to look at that from Einstein's um, theory point of view is that space is actually being created between things. So it's not expanding into anything. It's just thing, spaces being created between mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and things are getting further apart because of that. So that's Very one, that's one, one example. Now, there's also ideas that maybe the metric is not the fundamental thing, and then there's mm-hmm. the layers down to go, and that's where string theory comes in, and yeah, lots of oh, okay. lots, lots of other ways of thinking. Yeah, yeah. And is there a way to pr- probably not, but is there a way to like prove or test these theories in a way that so like when Einstein first came up with this, did he see a problem that original ideologies of gravity had? comes up with this new idea and said, hmm, I see multiple different things here that verify this idea. Yeah, that was very concrete. So, so there were, he predicted certain um, phenomena in the solar system, mm-hmm. which, which were then measured 
the, and so the, so the very concrete tests were made. Okay. And 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 by now many many concrete tests have been made and and the Einstein's theory has been um very very successful. It's it's a it's normal in physics these days to expect your fundamental theories of one decade to to become the derived theories of, from something more fundamental in some future decade. Um remarkably and and that's happened in particle physics a lot. Mm -hmm. So 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 we we still think of electrons as fundamental, protons and neutrons not at all. <laughs> they're they're made out of quarks and gluons and mm -hmm. you know there's that story sort of seems to continue, but remarkably Einstein gravity is not um tolerated. So people have proposed lots of variations on that theme. And none of them, all of them, have been proven wrong. So okay. not all, you know, it's it's been very hard to be successful with that. And um, I I remember at a conference once someone who made his whole career of trying to um, look beyond Einstein's theory, and it was very very it was sort of a um, someone who very invested in that, and I know could take very strong strong positions <laughs> about it. At some at some point, he got up and he just said, "Boy." Einstein's gravity is a tough theory to beat. It's, I've been trying to do it my whole career and nothing's worked. And it's partly because people have lots of good data to, to mm -hmm. test test these alternative ideas. Yeah. And more like on a broad scientific, I guess, labeling, is there any way in which that theory would become a law? That's a great question. I, I would say, um, I would turn it around and say any law might be superseded. Okay. And and the um, and no, there is no th such thing as a law that couldn't be superseded. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What tends to happen is what what we expect is that when 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 a theory is very well established um, in a certain domain, we expect the its successor to reproduce the mm -hmm. results. Mm -hmm. So there there should be a way of understanding. So with new with Einstein's gravity, there's a way. To see how Newton's gravity works yeah. in certain limits, mm -hmm. and 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 that's generally and and with quantum physics, there's a way to see how classical physics yeah. works in certain limits. Yeah. So so um, and that's all there is to laws are the be our best theories of the time. Yeah, mm -hmm. and then you mentioned that Einstein's theory was built off of four dimensions. Yes, can we be certain? that there are just four? Because in our preparation, we were watching some videos on string theory and different things that are extrapolating out. And yeah. some of them were like, oh, this model's built on- Nine dimensions. Nine dimensions, yeah. yeah. Assuming a given amount of dimensions yes. and then tailoring that in. Could you just talk about what yeah. that means? So, so generally, people who work at the cutting edge of physics are always asking what's next. Mm -hmm. what, what, could, what could be adapted? And, and the idea of additional dimensions is more or less as old as Einstein's theory. So people worked on adding dimensions, you know, hundred years ago, and then you have to. So the idea is that here's this beautiful theory. Um, you you can add dimensions and add sort of extra ingredients to 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 make the dimensions. And there's a way in which some of those ingredients look like they might show up as other things, like the like the um, electric and magnetic fields or something, you know, there, there's different ideas over history about how that could work. And then, um, but then you have to also hide, then the fact is we don't see other dimensions, mm -hmm. so you have to hide that. So it's, it's, 
it's been a pretty fun ride trying to investigate that. And right, yeah, right now, people, um, for the most part, you know, string theorists are very, very focused on lots of different numbers of dimensions, yeah. and and then you need, you know, you 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 can see what that does for you. That there's very clear benefits in in sort of theoretic from the theoretical considerations, but also you have to find ways to hide those dimensions from us. Yeah, yeah. And um, there's a couple of different things. Yeah, you can try with that. It's not. It's now normal to think that there's interesting physics that's hidden from us. Yeah. Quantum yeah. physics, you know, however long humanity's existed, we've only had to understand quantum physics in the last hundred years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so we're we're used to things being hidden from us. People didn't know if there was much of a universe outside the Earth yeah. <laughs> or or outside the solar system or whatever, and now we know it goes for billions of light years. Yeah. So, so. We're now used to having all kinds of cool stuff hidden, yeah, <laughs> hidden away. So then the question is, what's the next hiding place? Yeah, and for the listener, a great visual visual representation of that video that we were referencing there was if people are relatively familiar with a three dimensional graph where you have like the x y z axis. One of the hypotheses was a particle spinning around an axis is a different dimension, but it's still going from our perspective along that y-axis or along that x-axis. So from our perspective, it wasn't, you don't observe a different dimension. Doesn't mean there isn't one there of like the rotational one around that axis. One, one way people run with that is say, imagine an ant crawling along a thin yeah. straw. Yeah. And the ant doesn't, you know, in some sense can't really explore the radial mm -hmm. dimension but um can go sees it sees it as a linear mm -hmm. thing yeah. and and um another the, the, that's one approach is sort it's called compactifying mm -hmm. dimensions another approach is to um sort of have the laws of physics so they just stick to lower numbers of dimensions yeah. and and, mm -hmm. and it's just harder it's hard to get off mm -hmm. your your um the part of the manifold you live in mm -hmm. yeah and then stepping back a little bit could you define matter and antimatter in the space of yes or in the yes, topic you would ask about that yeah. Earlier. yeah so so um as it so you might have encountered um special relativity as as a conversation started starting with a conversation about different reference frames and how you um things can look one way from from one frame and another way from a moving frame mm -hmm. and 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 basically einstein's theory of special relativity of tied all that together in a really cool way um it turns out that when you take special relativity so special relativity is special because it doesn't yet include gravity it's just the it's just understanding changes of reference frames before you get to curvature. Mm -hmm. okay. So so when you take the 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 um, special relativity point of view of changing reference frames, and you apply that to the quantum physics of elementary particles, you discover you need the idea of an antiparticle to 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 sort of comprehensively understand how things hang so a particle might look like an ordinary particle in one reference frame and like an antiparticle 
mm-hmm. in, in another reference frame. And there's a whole elaborate um, scheme for keeping track of all of that. Mm-hmm. So particles, to, so because of special relativity and quantum field theory, particles need antiparticles to, to um, so some, in some cases, the antiparticles are the same as the particles. And in other cases they have, like the photon is its own antiparticle. The electron has an anti-electron okay. with opposite charge. So, so there's some um, sort of a whole scheme of keeping track of these mm-hmm. anti- anti-particles, but it's part of, part of how particles work. Thanks. Thanks to the effects of special relativity. Okay. And the different perspectives. So you can't really have a particle with how, if, if you didn't have an antiparticle of some sort, um, special relativity would break down. And we have shown special relativity to. Like, yeah. And we found all these anti, so antiparticles are known things in accelerators. They're not just theorized at this point. Okay. They're, they're, so there's ways of measuring. Yeah. You can find that you can create them. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there, are they currently all around us? Like, so, so in some sense, the the actual matter of the universe is so you could ask, could there be equal numbers of particles and antiparticles? And that's not the case. The, the mm-hmm. real universe is made almost entirely of matter, not antimatter. Oh, okay. But there's antiparticles floating around, and there's also subtle ways they show up as quantum effects on smaller scales. But um and that's actually one of the puzzles of the universe is exactly how that imbalance was created. There's mm-hmm. ideas of how the, it's, it's not a, it's not a, um, a radical puzzle in the sense there's lots of good ideas about how that could happen, mm-hmm. but it's not um, clear which, which if either of the known ideas is what the universe chose. Mm-hmm. So, And does that same mindset extend to energy versus dark energy of the idea that if energy is acting in this way, in order for that to be like, true, we have to have dark energy. Yes. So, 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 whereas there was a question earlier about energy and about conservation of energy, and not, mm-hmm. and I knew just what to say because we know we understand energy very well. So, so I, I saw this question you had sent me your list mm-hmm. of questions. So I was I was getting ready to say um, we understand energy very well we don't understand dark energy at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's sort of dark energy is a label for energy for, for stuff. We don't know stuff we see in the universe that we don't really understand. And so it's got a label, but we don't really know what it is. Oh, okay. But there's a, there's a glitch in that simple commentary I tried, mm-hmm. which is the, um, I talked about the vacuum. Yeah. Uh-huh. The vacuum has energy. And we don't understand that at all. It's the norm, like, what is the normal energy of the vacuum of elementary particles? It's, we're pretty confused about exactly what to make of that. And it's very closely tied to the dark energy because mm-hmm. it can have, it can have a similar effect to, to, so basically we think there's dark energy because the expansion of the universe that we know is there is that has now been determined to be accelerating, so mm-hmm. speeding up. And, and if you think about, so the standard way we were thinking until 20 years ago when this more now, 25 years ago when this was discovered was, was, um, well, the universe is expanding, but it's made out of matter that we know and gravity pulls things together. Mm -hmm. So gravity should be slowing down the expanding universe. 
but instead it's speeding up. So it's like I throw a ball in the air and instead of it coming down, it goes zooming off into the universe, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, faster and faster. I can't throw a ball out of, out of orbit of the earth, but suppose the ball on its own <laughs> just took off mm -hmm. and that's what the universe is doing. So, so something's different. So something's some anti-gravity kind of thing is going on and we don't really, we don't know what it is. There's lots of things it could be. It tur turns out it's not that hard to um, modify the known equations for the universe to get that phenomenon. But, um, so it's not hard to come up with ideas, but it's, each one has certain mysteries. It's not, it's not like an easy, okay, this is it. We, we know it's gotta be this. Even just from a theorist's point of view, each one seems very mysterious and problematic mm -hmm. in its own way. And then we don't really know which one's right yeah. at yeah. this point. And within the vacuum, how do we know that it is energy if we don't know how to define it exactly? So you mean if it's not conserved and that kind of, oh, so, so the vacuum, so if we take, so if I have an electron, mm -hmm. I know exactly what to say about its energy. If yeah. I have two electrons, I know what to say about its energy. If I have, but it's energy compared with the state of no electrons. So if I take the state of no electrons, the vacuum, that's got some energy I don't understand. It's, okay. it's technically infinite. Mm -hmm. if, I, if, I, if I just take the simplest ideas seriously, it's infinite. We know it can't be that, so we typically just subtract <laughs> infinity from it uh -huh. to say it's zero. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then, and then we know if we add one electron, we know what that yeah. is okay. compared with zero, okay. compared with yeah. the zero point, yeah. and so on. So, so it's um, we know the relative energies, and and the thing the thing is that um, until we go to general relativity, it's only the relative energies that mean anything. Yeah. So, so um, I can you know I can say this pen has a certain potential energy rising above the desk and I can drop it and that energy is released into kinetic energy. Um, but I don't need to know like where the zero point, I can do all of that analysis <laughs> without knowing where the zero point is. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I can say actually uh, way up here is the zero point of energy. That's fine. I can still do the same equations and work mm -hmm. it all out. But, um, for, for um, Einstein gravity that then that, zero point means something and, yeah. it, and it shows up in Einstein's equations, um, in a particular place and, and it, and it changes how things operate. And so, um, so basically one of the ways you can accelerate the universe is have the zero point have just the right value. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but we don't know why it should have one value or another. Mm -hmm. So we're, so the, that's where, that's where we admit if we're being honest, we admit confusion. Yeah. And one quick question. I know we've been going on to some other points we want to get to before we wrap up, but could you explain the arrow of time briefly and why time travels in what seems to be one direction? So, um, so your starting point is you seem to have noticed that it does. So, so you break a glass or whatever, and it doesn't just hop back up. So, so the, um, Laws of physics, as we know them, say if if I if I were to take a movie and of the glass falling down and include all the microscopic particles, a movie of the reverse is just as legitimate from the point of view of the equations we know. Mm -hmm. So, but it's somehow 
it's it's hard to turn it around. Just like we talked about that photon yeah. going off into space. Like, how do we get it and turn it around? Um, and it turns out that all of that um, boils down to how the universe began. So, so we use one of the usual ways we use to to track the arrow of time is entropy, which mm -hmm. is sort of loosely known as disorder or mm -hmm. all kinds of things. So the beginning of the universe was in a very low entropy state, mm -hmm. and it's been going up ever since. And and that's the and and basically, it's very hard to take high entropy and turn it into low entropy. Okay. And 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 that's but then then comes the question. Well, if it's hard to t turn something into low entropy, how did the beginning of the universe manage to do it? Mm -hmm. And 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 that whole nice story turns into a big mystery. <laughs> yeah. And 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 that that's a whole thing. That, you know, I could go on and on yeah, about, yeah. about that. And that's and but you can see how that ties in yeah. to 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 cosmology ultimately. Definitely. And then we were also talking earlier about how laws are kind of just very well tested theories in a way. Do how confident are we that the constants that we observe in the world, the speed of light, the speed of sound, are actually constants, or does it matter if they truly are that the speed of light is this one speed? Can we say that with certainty? No, we we always question that. So the speed of sound is actually very well known to vary. In mm -hmm. So what sound is is the speed of certain kinds of waves traveling through air. Mm -hmm. But we can also, I, I'm not sure you want me to actually pound the table with all these microphones <laughs> here, but, but, but I can pound the table and that will create waves in the table mm -hmm. or or I can pound on the wall or, you know, or, or make waves in the water. Sound waves in water travel at a different speed. Yeah. And and so all of that, and there must be examples where, where well, a sonic boom. Mm -hmm. So, well, that's not quite the same thing, but a sonic boom is when an airplane is traveling faster than the speed of sound. And and that that can be um, um, anyway. So so the speed of sound is varies depending on the medium. Mm -hmm. um, remarkably, we have no evidence that that same thing is happening. Well, no, the speed of light also there's there's a sense in which the speed of light varies in the medium, and that's what makes diffraction happen and, mm. and all of that. So so there's still the, there's still the even when you say there's, there's sort of the effective speed of light mm -hmm. in, a, in a medium but the speed of light there's sort of a fundamental quantity in the equations that even describe a diffracting lens that's the true speed of light in a vacuum and that doesn't seem to be varying but people try it so mm -hmm. so so as i said earlier there's the lesson physicists have learned is that there's always something new to um there's no a new deeper way to think of things that sort of expands our horizons and and allowing for the possibility that the the so-called constants of nature actually vary is one of the ways people explore mm -hmm. yeah. we've been talking about a lot of different mysteries that exist within physics is there a particular part of that puzzle that to you is the most fun or enjoyable aspect to ponder on Well, I am going to, I'm, so what's coming up to me is sort of all the things we've talked about because I, and partly because I think they're interrelated. Mm -hmm. So, so we've, we've been talking about the beginning of the universe. Um, that's 
we've just sort of arrived at the connection to the arrow of time. Um, the beginning of the universe is connected with quantum physics, connected with the emergence of classical behavior from quantum. Um, I have a recent paper where I've been really digging into, well, how how does this whole arrow of time thing look from a quantum point of view? H how does the beginning, you know, if you, if you have a true quantum description, is there really me meaning to the beginning? <laughs> And 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 in what sense is there meaning to the beginning? And in what sense can you extract an arrow of time from that? And and one of the things, you know, we've talked about quantum worlds and we've talked about um, many possibilities in quantum physics. So so in some sense, it seems like an arrow of time is always a possibility in a quantum world, even if the full picture doesn't seem to have an arrow. So that's that's been a lot of fun. So so I think probably all of the mysteries that we talk about at least at some point to me seem interrelated mm -hmm. and so so i i love sort of surfing among them and and finding finding ways to connect them and um who knows what where that will lead mm -hmm. and transitioning out we have a few questions more so i guess that are more tangible <laughs> um starting with what's been the biggest failure in your career oh i saw that question and i thought you know, I think at this point, so so I'm 65 years old. I've had I've been through a lot, and and I think um, everything that you could call a failure has also been um, something I learned something from, mm -hmm. and and almost like enriched by the learning. So so and maybe if if I, you know, maybe that's a message to to your listeners is to to um, the more the more a, a so-called failure is, is also a learning experience, the better. Because I mm -hmm. think I think picking up and going on, I think respecting the pain yeah. of something that feels like a failure, <laughs> but then also finding a way forward yeah. is is a is not a bad way to try to do it. It's yeah. Not not that, I'm not saying it was always easy. Yeah, yeah. But um, you know, I can you know. I, long ago, I had a position. My my first it was at a national lab, but sort of like a faculty position, and and I didn't get tenure, mm -hmm. and I was pretty annoyed about that. But I also took that as a chance to think, well, how you know what went wrong, and and I don't think I was promoting my ideas well enough. I don't mm -hmm. think I I was um, pe people really understood what I was getting up to in my research, and so I try to get better of that, mm -hmm. that and that helped. But on the other hand, the stuff I was doing then that people didn't really understand, I'm actually really known for now. And I've yeah. received honors <laughs> recognizing that. And a lot of my grant support now is based on the stuff I was um, wrestling with then. So it wasn't a, you know, there were sort of many sides to that. Yeah. And, and I think, um, let's see, I had, had another thought about that, that um, oh, I'm, I've lost it now. So maybe it'll come back. Maybe maybe I'll I'll, I'll think. But, but but there's a lot of different kinds of failure. Yeah, <laughs> and and try to learn from it. Certainly. And then, what is QMap and your role as director? So QMap. So some years ago, um, then Provost Ralph Hexter uh, had this idea that. Um, 
the campus was growing a lot and he thought, well, why not take a fraction of the positions we were adding, faculty positions we were adding, and do something really new and different with those. And um, there was a competition, a campus-wide competition for different ideas, and people in the physics department and the math department put together an idea of bridging those two departments, which is something that... Now, I think a lot of people think, well, how can there be physics without math? Surely, surely they're already... What more bridging can be done? But the cultures of the different fields are quite different. Mm -hmm. And so the math we typically... The, the, the math the typical physicists use uses is just boring old hat for mathematicians. It's not <laughs> not math, not, not research grade math. There are er known areas like in string theory where, where there are interesting t links. And so the idea is to, was to create a community, you know, hire some people to bridge those kinds of areas. And that was successful and we brought in some really exciting people and they said, let's Let's think bigger than just this little group of four people that came in. Let's let's build something bigger, and so that that was that's what became QMAP. And I I was invited to be director, so I was not one of the new group that came in. I've been here for a while, but I was invited to be director. And I would say, um, you know, in terms of, I think we're all still learning what we what we really want to do with it. I, I, I know, I mean, what we want is the, to have the most vibrant, exciting place possible <laughs> yeah. to, to, to work in all these exciting subject areas. And I think we, we already have that in the sense of all these individuals doing great research and it's fun to be in the same space with them and it's fun for our students to have chances to run into each other and for us to run into each other rather than cycling between different buildings yeah. and, and all of that. And we've had... You know, great workshops bring bring people in from around the world to to you know talk about to work on the latest things, and we have a, a lively visitor program. People coming through. I I personally um I, I think we're still learning how what all we can do with that. I think it feels like just the beginning to me. Partly, you know, this this building came into we were in separate buildings um, until this space was created, and this space opened up in technically opened up in summer 2020 mm. but no one was coming into work in summer 2020 yeah and it's actually been the slow process and i'm even noticing just like this quarter or maybe last quarter finally feeling like this space is really starting to feel like there's people here and, mm -hmm. there's, and there's people milling around and coming and going so i think we i think we're just at the beginning and i think there's a lot of cool things um, mm -hmm. coming coming from that but but um it's already been a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. And could you briefly describe the logo? Because I yes. looked on the website, it's a beautiful logo. We'll link it in the, the website. But yes. We saw and part and so it. if you if you go actually to the QMAP website and there's a section called science, if you click on that, it actually deconstructs the logo into into the different so it's a series of overlapping images. One of them express, ex expresses gravity and through the image of a black hole. One of them expresses um, uh, some something called holography, which is sort of a, an idea that's emerged from string theory and about the relation, actually the relation, relating different dimensions. We were talking about different mm -hmm. dimensions and very interesting relationships where what's going on in one dimension might be showing up in another and, and um, I, ideas of um, uh, interesting 
new ways of thinking about the quantum physics of particles called amplitude, the amplitude hedron, and there's sort of a variety of different. So images taken from a variety of the sorts of physics we work on and then superposed in a beautiful way. So Professor Hubeni is, um, is, is the designer of that, and it's really great. And I don't um, see it. Uh, and uh, we have various bits of swag that I don't, I don't have with me right now. So yeah. I should have worn my QMAP t-shirt to, <laughs> to the interview. And then real quickly, what does QMAP stand for? The Center for Quantum Mathematics and Physics. Okay, perfect. So I don't know whether the A is from mathematics or from and. <laughs> <laughs> and we also noticed on the website, you say you typically do trial periods with graduate students. Right. So that's my own personal yeah. style, which yeah. is very common mm -hmm. in physics, yes. What are you looking for during that period? So that's a really great question. And it's something I, I, um, I would say a graduate student passes their trial period they, they don't all do it by doing the same thing, mm -hmm. but well, I see enough elements of promise, I would say, and it could be sort of showing independent initiative, it could be showing technical skill, you know, usually some mix of all those things, showing curiosity, mm -hmm. um, showing commitment, show, showing um, read, willingness to, to, to really dig in and work hard. Um, it, you know, there's probably a personal element, like just do we click mm -hmm. as a mentor and student? Yeah. What do you hope the listener takes away from the conversation today? Oh, I, I hope the listener um, gets a flavor for, for what an exciting adventure this is. And I think there's something about our human nature that loves adventure. Mm -hmm. And, and um, there's many places to have adventures. It doesn't have to be physics or cosmology, but... This is one of them, and I so I hope hope I've I've tickled your sense of adventure and and um, in whatever form you enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, I think you did because I feel like as many questions as that were answered were also brought up new questions and left unanswered. Yeah. So yeah. there's definitely a lot more adventure to be had. Absolutely. And as we part here, do you have any other words of wisdom, advice, things you want to share? Yeah, I, I think um, what I'd like to think is that the sense of adventure we experience at these kind of frontiers um, can inspire people to feel a sense of adventure in whatever they do. Mm -hmm. I, I think one of the things, one of the lessons from science is to stay curious and to, you know, like like today's fundamental constant, mm -hmm. maybe have some totally different explanation in the future. Um, it's i think it helps to think about life that way you know the way you look at life now you you may be curious and discover new ways of looking at it mm -hmm. maybe maybe this is even maybe this is too ambitious but <laughs> if i think about the the polarized um, politics we live in and all of that maybe each of us having curiosity about the other side and trying to learn trying to understand where people are coming from may, maybe that same kind of maybe that curiosity can extend uh in helpful ways in lots of parts of life. Mm -hmm. Certainly. I don't think that's too ambitious. Yeah. I hope not. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Professor Elbrecht. It's been thank wonderful. Yeah, thank I've you. really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Thank you. To continue your learning, go to our website, discoveringacademia.com. There, you will find the show notes, resources mentioned, 
ways to get involved, and much more pertaining to each professor. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave a review, and join our newsletter to stay up to date. Until next time.